Let's turn now to Exodus chapter 1 as we begin the book of Exodus. Now, the word now could very well read and, as far as the Hebrew is concerned, for the book of Exodus is just a continuation of Genesis. The last verse of Genesis, so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt, every man and his household that came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already, and Joseph died, and all his brethren in that generation. Exodus 1, 1 through 6. So we can see how the first part of chapter 1 of Exodus is really just the continuation of the book of Genesis, again, written by Moses. It is interesting that the five books of Moses comprise almost one-seventh of the entire Bible, that they compromise almost as much as two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, if God devotes one-seventh of the book to one particular period of history and study, it is evidently basic and foundational, and God wants us to really know and understand it. So we have now the names of the sons of Jacob who came down with him. They came down with their families into Egypt, 70 souls, for Joseph was already there with his two sons. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly and mighty, and the land was filled with them. Verse 7. Now, it's probably an understatement. Children of Israel, fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, waxed exceedingly mighty. The land was filled with them. In other words, they're just trying to tell you here that there was a population explosion among the Jews at that time. Indeed, there must have been. For the 70 souls that were there, about 300 years after Joseph's death, when they made the exodus out of Israel, at that time, there were 600,000 adult males over the age of 21. So you see when it says multiplied exceedingly, and all that's exactly what they were doing. They were doubling their population about every 25 years. Now, there rose up a new king over Egypt, and he knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falls out another war, they will join also with our enemies and fight against us, and then get out of the land. Verses 8 through 10. Now the Pharaoh actually was fearful of them leaving the land. He felt that if another war would take place, that they would take advantage of it, fight with the enemy, and then leave the land. So in order to thwart this, the Pharaoh set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for the Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, 
the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter and with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they made them serve, was with rigor. Verses 11 through 14. So they really began to afflict them, to oppress them, to lay upon them heavy burdens, to make life rather hard and miserable for them by afflicting heavy slave labor upon them. Everything they did, they had to do it with rigor. Now, it is interesting that under these conditions, the children of Israel continued to multiply and grow. And probably one of the greatest weakening things that can happen to a nation is prosperity. Nations seem to become strong and grow under adversity. The same seems to be true of the church. In the early history of the church, the church was going through such severe persecution by the Roman government, the church was growing by leaps and bounds, tremendous growth in the early church. But when the church began to be prosperous, Christianity began to be an accepted religion, almost a state religion. In fact, in many areas, it did become the state religion. And in all of those areas, the church became weak. Prosperity has a tendency of softening people, whereas adversity has a tendency of doing the opposite, making the people strong. So the Pharaoh, in his endeavor to weaken them by the heavy labor and the rigorous labor, working with bricks and stones and really putting heavy burdens upon them, did not have the desired effect of weakening them, but actually made them just that much stronger. They really all got in just tremendous condition. And the king of Egypt spoke with the Hebrew midwives. The name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and you see them upon the stools, if it is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, then let her live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they're lively and they deliver before we ever get to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born, you shall cast him into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Verses 15 through 22. So the Pharaoh, first of all, sought to cut off the male children by ordering the midwives, to kill them the moment they were born. When that failed, then he gave a general order to just take the male babies and cast them into the river. Save the girl babies. They, of course, might be servants and slaves later. There is a problem here of the obvious lie of the midwives. When the pharaoh called them on the carpet, how come you haven't fulfilled my order? Well, these women are just so lively. Before we can get to them, the babies are already born they're not like the Egyptian women who have a life of ease and leisure. Now this, of course, could be true. It seems that where women are forced into hard labor, their body condition becomes such that they can have a baby and go right back to work. Now out in New Guinea, where the ladies do so much of the farming 
and so much of the work, they'll have their baby and then they'll strap it on their back and go back out into the field and work again. So it is very possible that this was not a lie, but some look upon it as a lie. Whether or not it was, I don't know. But if it were a lie that they were telling to the Pharaoh, then indeed, how is it that God blessed them? I don't have an answer. And that's one of those difficult things. I don't understand it. I don't know. All I know is that that's what it says. God blessed them. So God dealt well with them. Chapter 2. There went a man of the house of Levi and took to a wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him for three months. Exodus 2, 1 through 2. Now, the word goodly is beautiful. So this woman had a beautiful little boy, and she couldn't bring herself to throwing him in the river. Now, that was the order of the Pharaoh, but he was such a beautiful little boy, and of course, what mother could really just throw her son into the river? So she hid him for three months, and when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch or tar and put the child inside and she laid him in the ark by the river's bank verse three so in other words she was fulfilling casting the child in the river but she just fixed a little basket and waterproofed it so that she would put him in the river not necessarily inside the river but in the basket on the river and his sister stood afar off to find out what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the baby cried, and she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children, verses 4 through 6. So we see the beautiful story of God's preservation. The child was placed in this little waterproof basket there on the river. The sister stayed back in sort of the bushes to watch the basket to see what happens. Here, the daughters of Pharaoh came down to take their bath, and they saw the basket, and she sent one of her maidens out to get the thing and find out, you know, curiosity. So she opened it up, and just at that time, little Moses started crying, and her heart was touched. Ah, it's one of the Hebrews' children. So Moses' sister came up, Miriam, who we will learn about a little bit later, and she said to Pharaoh's daughter, Do you want me to get a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Verse 7. Now that was a very common thing in those days, wet nursing. So you get a woman to just wet nurse your child for you. So that's what Miriam is offering to do. Get a woman to nurse the child. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And so the maid went and called the child's mother, Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give you wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, which means to be taken out of the water, because I drew him out of the water, verses 8 through 10. So, interesting way that God has of working. Moses was able to grow up at home during the early years where he received the strong inculcating of the 
Hebrew traditions, endued with a sense of, of a nation of destiny. Certainly, it's a tremendous example of what the proverb declares. If you train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Because in those early formation years, Moses had received such a strong foundation that it was strong enough that he was able to withstand all of the pressures of the many years of the education within the Egyptian schools. So don't underestimate the value of those early years. It is said that the Jewish mothers from the time the baby was first cradled in their arms would begin to whisper in their ears, Jehovah is God. And I think for some of you mothers, one of the greatest things you can do is just whisper in your children's ears, Jesus loves you. Paul wrote to Timothy and spoke of how at youth he was taught in the scriptures by his godly mother and grandmother. What a heritage that is. Even before you think your child can understand, begin his education and training in the very first few months. It is so important that their brain be stimulated because of all those little neuron connections are being made back there. They're being made according to the stimulus that the child receives. So that's why they say have mobiles in the crib and colors that will move and all kinds of action to stimulate the development of the connections there during that crucial time because their future mental capacities will be directly proportionate to the number of connections that are made in these early months. So Moses's mother did an excellent job. God even saw that she got paid for it. I like the way the Lord operates. So rather than losing a son, she gained a son and also had wages as she nursed him. Then she brought him into the Pharaoh's court and presented him in, and then he was schooled in Egypt. Now the book of Hebrews tells us it was by faith that she put that little ark in the river. By faith, she refused to obey the Pharaoh's orders, but built a little ark and placed the child in it. By faith, Moses, when he came to age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter or to identify himself with the Egyptians, but he identified himself with the people of God. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter in order that he might enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. For he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. That shows you there that there was just a strong background with Moses. Now, not only a strong background, but a sense of destiny and God's purpose for these people was instilled in Moses. So that Moses, when he went out in the field, which we'll be studying here in just a minute, and found an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, killed the Egyptian. The next day when he saw two Israelites striving together and he went to break them up, he said, they said, who made you judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And we are told in Stephen's oration in the Acts of the Apostles that Moses thought that they understood that God had destined him to be the leader, to lead them out of their bondage. Moses thought they'd understand that, he had such a sense of destiny in those early years. But let's move on. And it came to pass, verse 11, chapter 2, in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brothers and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brothers. Verse 11. 
So he had this identity with the Hebrew people rather than with the Egyptians. And it had come in those early, early years. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Verse 12. Now, some say the mistake was he looked this way and that way, but he didn't look up. We make that mistake so often. We look this way and that way, and then we act, not realizing that God sees us. He tried to hide his deed by burying the Egyptian in the sand. Now, as I said, Moses had a sense of destiny. Somehow he felt, and perhaps because of the position, somehow he felt that he was destined to lead these people out of their bondage. He seemed to have this awareness and consciousness. He was surprised that they didn't recognize it. The problem with Moses was that he just got ahead of God. He tried to do what God wanted done in the ability and in the power of his own flesh. Knowing what God wanted, aware of the purposes of God, his big mistake was getting ahead of God. Now, this is a mistake that we often make. We know what God wants to do. We don't want to wait for God or his empowering to do it. We get out and we try to do it in the energy of our own flesh. What we realize God desires to be done. But I want you to notice how unsuccessful he was in trying in his own ability of his own flesh to do what God wanted done. He was not even successful in burying one Egyptian. Now, when God was going to do it, he wanted to bury the whole army, which he later did in the Red Sea. Well, we must be careful about the zeal that we oftentimes feel for the work of God, where we start off without the anointing and the direction of the Holy Spirit in the ability and the energies of our flesh accomplish the purposes and the work and the purposes of God, we, like Moses, will end up in failure. The work of the Spirit can never be accomplished in the ability of our own flesh. To do the work of the Spirit, I must be anointed, empowered, and directed by the Spirit of God. So many of my problems have arisen from this same mistake that Moses made, having a consciousness of what God wants to do, having an awareness of the purposes of God, I tried to fulfill the purposes of God without the leading and without the direction and without the help of the Holy Spirit. I get ahead of God and every time I do, I botch things up just as Moses did. He tried to hide the Egyptian. Now, when he went out the next day, two men were, Hebrews, were fighting together. And he said to them that did the wrong, why did you smite this fellow? And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? You intend to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Now, when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Verses 13 through 15. So when the Pharaoh discovered that Moses had taken the side of a Hebrew over an Egyptian, he had determined to kill Moses. But Moses fled and went out to the area of Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, 
and they came to draw water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. And the mean shepherds came and drove them away, verses 16 and 17. So they'd stand back and watch the girls draw all the water out, and then they'd come and chase the girls off and water their own flocks. Moses saw what was going on. So Moses stood up, and he helped them, and he watered their flock. And when they came to uh, Ruel, their father, he said, How come you're home so early? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of their shepherds, and he also drew water for us, and he watered the flocks, and he said to his daughters, well, where is he? Why do you leave the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. That's a typical kind of Bedouin kind of hospitality, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter, and she bare him a son, and called his name Gershom, which means stranger. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of their bondage. And they cried. And their cry came unto God by reason of their bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect for them verses 16 through 25. Now, between verses 22 and 23, a period of about 40 years goes by. It doesn't really show it in the text, but it is there. So next time we'll get into chapter 3. Shall we pray? Father God, let us have the heart of Moses to know that we have a purpose to fulfill your will, Lord. Father, let us have a heart to do the will of you, the will of God. Let our hearts burst, Lord, with wanting to fulfill your desires and your will for our life. Father, let us not try to do it under our own power. Father, let us wait for you, for your instructions, for your strength, for your power to come into us as we follow you, as we follow your son, Jesus. Lord, let us remember every day, every moment of every day, that your son gave his life to give our life purpose. Father, we love you, and we pray, Lord, for your son's quick return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.